what you sow. You give God an opportunity to show you what he can do, which far exceeds what you'd be able to do. And so if you are in a financial, maybe tight situation, Okay, I am very blessed to be with you uh, this morning, and we're going to look at a foundation for revival. First verse we're going to look at is in the Gospel of John, but I want you, before we look at it, I want you to kind of get a picture of yourself as if you were one of the 12 apostles. And that's a, don't, don't be intimidated by that. These, these were just regular guys, fishermen, tax collector, uh, zealots. I mean, they, they were all over the map. They were regular people changed by Christ. But just I want to picture yourself as one of the 12 on the night of the Last Supper. They'd come into Jerusalem, and they were greeted by multitudes celebrating Jesus Christ coming to Jerusalem. They were on a high. We are, the, you, you, the mind of the 12 apostles was just spinning at, he is the king, and now is the time. And then that night, Jesus, not for the first time, by the way, they just kept not getting it, he told them that he was going to be crucified, which, of course, doesn't, it, it was so outside of their box, they couldn't register it. Additionally, that night, he told them, as he had before, that he would be raised from the dead, but he also said that he was going to depart and go to his father. And let's read this section here after Jesus had told them this. It's in John chapter 16. There's a verse here that is really just not believed. As a matter of fact, to think about it deeply, most people don't even consider it a realistic possibility. And yet it's something that Jesus talked about. Let's start reading here. Jesus is talking in verse 5 of John 16. It says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? This happened with the apostles on a number of occasions. They were stunned into silence. They don't even know what to say. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. The elation of the triumphal entry to Jerusalem has now dropped down to sorrow, filling their heart because Jesus is going to leave them. Then verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Now talk about a redundant statement. Everything Jesus said was the truth. But here he points it out. I tell you the truth. Now what truth is he going to tell us? It is to your advantage that I go away. That's the part that's not believed. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. If Jesus had not gone to the Father, we would not have heard those messages of prophecy and interpretation just now. And I've got to tell you, I would have been right there with the apostles. Sorrow filling my heart. I, it was like, what do you mean it's going to be better if you go? They had been with Jesus. They had seen him exercise authority over disease, exercise authority over demons, exercise authority over the elements, exercise authority over death. And now you're going. And this is good. Yes, it is. Because Jesus said it is. 
But I would have been there with the apostles that night. And even today, if you look around the world at the church, you would be hard-pressed to say, hey, it's better that Jesus went to the Father. Better than the Old Testament, no doubt. We get that. But better than having Jesus here, that's where we're still stuck. Most Christians today are still stuck that what Jesus said was true. I want to see this in my life. Christ said it's true. I want to see it. Now, it does appear that the apostles came around to agreeing with Jesus. Because when you read the early chapters of Acts, you see phenomenal healings and miracles. You see the power of God so evident, the faith in God so abundant, that even the shadow of Peter brought healing. Shadows have no substance, do they? It's not a touch. You don't feel a shadow coming on you. In the Gospels, people touched Jesus' garment and were healed. But not even in the Gospels were people healed by a shadow. Better that I go to the Father. It's true. Later in the book of Acts, handkerchiefs or cloths that had touched the Apostle Paul were distributed and people got healed. That didn't happen in the Gospels. But you look around much of the church today and it doesn't look like it is really to our advantage that Jesus ascended into heaven. That's why we need a revival. A time when the word of God becomes living, real, and experienced. I want what Jesus said to be my life experience. The scriptures do encourage us, but they're to do more than encourage us. The scriptures are to inspire us to action so that we can experience what Jesus Christ claims is available. God is ready. Christ is ready. Is the church ready? Are we ready? Now, we can't be answerable for the entire body of Christ, but we can answer for ourselves. I want to see what God can do in a group of people that are fully devoted to his will and nothing but his will. God has plans for us to be a part of what he is doing on the earth. And what God is doing, that's what I want to be. I don't want to be pursuing my own agenda, however holy that might look. I want to pursue, what is God doing now? Let me get on board with that. And I want to announce this morning what I believe is going to be a critical component of our involvement in that revival and what God is doing. And that is that in two weeks, which is the next Sunday that we will be here at the center, I will step aside from leading Grace Christian Fellowship and Garrett Bova will have the joy of ministering to us as our lead pastor. At that time, Stephen Blacksmith will be supporting him as the vice president of the ministry, and Jess Mendoza will, of course, be continuing serving us and leading us in praise and worship. And I am excited to see what God is going to do. And this is something that God first prepared me for almost five years ago, in 2016. In 2016, he indicated to me 
that within five years, I needed to step aside from leading grace. Now, why he gave me so much lead time, I'm not sure. I have been known to be dense, so maybe it was just that. But uh, this transition, by the way, we had originally planned for it to take place on Pentecost at the end of May. Pentecost being a great time to introduce something new to the church because that's when the church was introduced. But because of the disruption that occurred around COVID-19, it was best that we postponed it. But as we did that, and you know, we did that in prayer, believing that that's what God wanted, but I knew that God wanted it sooner rather than later. And last week, after giving me five years' notice, <laughs> last week, he said, now the time has come, and we set it in motion so that it can be done uh, in two weeks, on August the 30th. So please join us here, either in person or online. By the way, I am not retiring. And Garrett is not taking my place. Garrett doesn't need to take my place. I haven't died. God doesn't want somebody new to lead to take Bob's place, but to take the, their place to lead the church where God wants it to go next. That's the difference. And I'm not going anywhere. I just have taken on different tasks. In fact, I have prayed to God for 25 more years of ministry. That's what I'm looking for. I have things that he would have me to do, the filming of classes, there's another couple of books I would like to write, and one of the things that I greatly enjoy is having the time to counsel with believers who are struggling in some area of their life, and that's a great blessing. That's what I'm looking forward to. But leading grace is something that God wants passed on. So the time has come to pass on that leadership, and you know, in my mind, the image is passing a baton. Now, that might not mean a lot to you, but I used to run track. And in track, when you run a relay, say the one-mile relay, every member of the team runs a quarter mile and then hands off the baton. Now, when you hand off the baton, you're still on the team, you're still in the race, and you're there cheering for the guy who's now running. So that's kind of how I view what we're doing. This is my view of what God has coming next for me, what God has coming next for Garrett is leading us in that part of his revival that he wants us to join him in here locally and having an impact globally. And I am really excited to talk about what God is going to do and to anticipate what we're going to see as his plans unfold for reaching our communities and building disciples. One of the things that God showed me is that Grace Christian Fellowship has gone as far as it can go under my leadership. Now, when he first said that, I wasn't quite sure what he meant. Have you ever had God tell you something and you're, okay, what does that mean? I have, I have that happen to me on a somewhat regular basis. Because God tells you something, you have to listen and believe, and then your understanding will many times uh, grow in that point. But I did know that God didn't mean it as an insult. Like, we need to get you out of the way. Get the dead wood out of the way. What this means is that God's plans for our church have grown and evolved. And what my long suits are in leadership that God had for me to be here with you all these years, they've changed. 
And so God has new plans and he has new leaders. I'd like you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Over the last 20 plus years, Grace Christian Fellowship has been endeavoring to build a foundation of God's word. We started, we, we, our ministry launched in 1998, uh, but before that we had been part of another ministry here in Illinois that had grown and then split. Steve Blacksmith's dad was a part of that ministry. We called it the Illinois Bible Fellowship, and Grace Christian Fellowship started uh, in 1998. So did the Abundant Life Christian Fellowship that uh, Fred Blacksmith still leads to this day. All of us have been endeavoring to build a foundation of God's word because that is the only foundation that is worth having. Look at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 3. It says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Paul started the church in Corinth. This is written to the church in Corinth. Paul started that church, and then as God directed him to go on to other places to speak the gospel, others then were building on what Paul had established. And he says, Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. When others came after Paul, they didn't reinvent the wheel. When others came after Paul, they built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, I make no claims to being a master builder like Paul. In fact, I have been building upon foundations that were committed and given to me. Now is the time that God wants us to change shifts. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean that the foundation is Jesus Christ? That his body is lying there and we're putting bricks on it? That's not the foundation it's talking about. It means the words of Jesus Christ, which are the words of God, because as it says in John 1.14, Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. The word of God lived out and exemplified. That is our foundation. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words. Well, what are sound words? Well, they're the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are sound words. There is no shortage of words in society today, is there? You can't get away from all the words that people speak. How many of them are sound words? Well, very few. The, the ones that are sound words, more than none, the ones that are sound words are the words that echo Jesus Christ. Those are sound words. And with the doctrine conforming to godliness. Jesus Christ is the foundation for all that the church is to do. But nobody stops building with a foundation. You, you lay a foundation to put up a building. God is preparing us for something new and something big as a church. God is preparing us to be part of a revival that he has set in motion. See, revivals are not dreamed up by ministers. Revivals, if they're true revivals, are dreamed up by God, who sets them in motion. Our responsibility is not to come up with the big ideas. Our responsibility is to follow God's lead and God's ideas. 
And this revival that God is setting in motion, it's going to look different throughout the world. It's, it's going to be global in nature. It'll be different in various different cultures, in different societies, in different streams of Christianity. And even though it will have many different components and applications, what I really believe is going to be the end run that we will see from this revival is that we will actually see that what Jesus said in John 16, 7 is true. It was better that he went away, and we're seeing it and experiencing the promise of Jesus Christ in our lives today. This is going to be a time when walk, we are so walking in our identity that we will really experience the truth of God's word, not just acknowledge the truth of it. Now, I'd like to explain a little bit about what I mean when I use the word revival. Now, you've probably heard of that word. People use it in different ways. The word revival, by the way, itself does not appear in Scripture. What you do see in God's word are such things as revive, renew, restore, repent, return. You notice all those begin with R-E? That means to bring up again. To revive is to bring to life. And that's what God wants to do. God speaks of the power of his word to revive people many, many times in Scripture. Depends on the translation you're reading. Uh, but Psalms is full of it. Psalms is full of it. I would like to show, read from you Psalm 119, verse 50. It says, This is my comfort in my affliction. You know what Jess shared earlier about uh, being able to move past things that hinder us or that afflict us. Your word has revived me. Your word has revived me. And when the individual Christian is revived and he comes together with the church, then you have revival where it spreads across the globe. And what is revival? What does that mean? What happens when the church wakes up? Revival is a time of renewal in devotion to God among his people. And it is always historically accompanied by a renewed zeal for the things of God and for his kingdom. And there are several examples of revival in God's word. Read the book of Judges, pick any judge, and it's a revival. Gideon is a great example. What Gideon did, God raised him up. First, what Gideon did was he led Israel to forsake their idols. And then Israel defeated their enemies. That was the revival. Israel was in hiding. Gideon himself was so afraid of the Midianites that he was hiding in a wine press trying to thresh his wheat to keep it from being stolen. You know, when you thresh wheat, of course, this is ancient agriculture, they'd have to throw it up in the air to let the wind blow off the chaff. Can you imagine? How do you do that in a wine pit? There's no wind down there. That's how much fear was throughout Israel. They had fear because they needed a revival, a restoration of the truth of God and his word. Hezekiah also led a revival. His is interesting. Hezekiah, in the times of Hezekiah, Isaiah was the prophet then, 
They needed revival because Hezekiah's father, who had been king before him, desecrated the temple. So what Hezekiah did was he cleaned up the temple, had the priests clean up the temple. They couldn't even find enough priests to do it. They had to consecrate Levites to help clean the temple. And then what Hezekiah reinstituted, there's another R-E word, was the observance of Passover, celebrating God's victory for Israel. Result of that, even though the Assyrians took the northern ten tribes of Israel, they were not able to conquer Jerusalem. And they endured for many more generations. One of the ones that interests me in the Bible is the revival of Jonah, because it's different. All these other revivals have to do with God's people who had a covenant relationship with him being restored to the worship of the one true God. That wasn't the case for Nineveh. God sent a prophet to a pagan city, and a pagan city responded in repentance, which is another hallmark of uh, revival, and God delivered them and blessed the entire pagan nation in Nineveh. Isn't that remarkable? Our God is... He is more willing to bless than we are. Jonah didn't want Nineveh saved. Jonah didn't want to go preach in Nineveh because, oh, man, I know what kind of a God you are. If I go there and preach and they repent, you're going to have mercy. And what I really want is for them to all be killed. See how, see how the disconnect between our thinking sometimes and God's thinking? But... The greatest revival in the Old Testament was the revival under John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Jesus himself called him the greatest of prophets. Well, there's a long line of prophets there. And Jesus himself identified John as the greatest of prophets. And the revival that he led was extraordinary because it wasn't just in preparation for battle against one of God's enemies. It was in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Talk about a big task. Because Israel, let me tell you, in the first century, they were not ready for the Messiah. Just like the church today is not ready for much of what God wants to do. That's why the foundation of revival is always scripture, so that we can get ready. Let's read about John in Mark chapter 1. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, another R-E word. Turning around, turning back to their covenant. And what was unique about John was he was the first person who baptized Jews. Baptism in the Old Testament period, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, by the time of the first century, not only did you have to be circumcised if you were a man, you also had to be baptized. But Jews themselves did not have a baptism for themselves. The washings of the Jewish faith at that time were at the temple. John was different. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, repentance, returning these are covenant people, right? They're returning back to the covenant that they had sworn with God. 
Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I like honey. Locusts, I'm not so sure about. And he preached, saying, this is, a part, this is the revival part, part two. First, there was repentance, right? And confession of sins in that case. Then what we have is, what is God commissioning us to do? And in this case, it was not to go out and conquer the Midian army. It was to receive the Messiah. That was the result of this revival. Why do you think so many multitudes were ready for Jesus when he started preaching? John the Baptist, whose ministry had spread throughout all Israel and Jerusalem. And he said, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That would be what the lowest slave did. I am not even worthy to be the lowest slave in his household. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with Holy Spirit. John the Baptist also recognized and announced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the revival that John the Baptist sparked involved repentance, a return to the covenant Israel had made with God, and the result was a preparation in the hearts of men and women to receive the Messiah. Now, one of the great facts of the impact of John's ministry, even beyond those multitudes who were prepared, five of the twelve apostles were specifically identified with John the Baptist before they were identified with Jesus Christ. And when it came time to replace Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, when it came time to replace Judas, one of the qualifications was he has to be a man who has been with us since the baptism of John. Talk about a ministry with an impact that even going into the age of the church, one of the 12 needed to be associated since the time of John the Baptist. That is quite a revival. And revivals didn't stop with John. There have been numerous revivals throughout the history of the Christian church. And revivals are usually based on some biblical truth that has been regained or on some sin that has been abandoned or on both. The church has repeatedly needed to return to some aspect of the kingdom of God that has been withering in neglect. And that's what happens. When you neglect something, it withers. When revival happened, meaning when people responded to God's word, God was able to move in dramatic and decisive ways. And in many respects, the Reformation since Martin Luther has been nothing but a series of revivals, each one building upon the one that, ones that came earlier. Martin Luther was a revival of justification by faith. Others came after that. Let's skip to John Wesley. John Wesley was a revival of grace and holiness and missionary zeal. After that, you move into the 19th century, we get to the Pentecostal revival. This is when the church finally started to see a bit of the power of the Holy Spirit that was available again. Moving into the 20th century after the Pentecostal revival, 
came what is often referred to as the Charismatic Revival. And the Charismatic Revival, it was definitively a carry-on of Pentecostal, but it was much more focused on the scriptures and what they declared and then living that out in the power of God. In many ways, the Charismatic Revival was a refinement of what went on in the Pentecostal Revival, and it was the Charismatic Revival that brought the power of the Holy Spirit to the world. And the Pentecostal Revival was really, in terms of numbers, was quite small. The Charismatic Revival, which built upon it, was huge. And we still see its effects to this day. After the Charismatic Revival came something that has been called the Jesus Movement. The Jesus Movement built on the Charismatic Revival and the power of the Holy Spirit, built on the scriptures as the foundation. God's focus with that revival, because God has different things he focuses on. His focus then was on young people and on missionary zeal. I got involved in God's word. I became a Christian during the Jesus movement. And that was in you know, the 60s and the 70s. And the next thing that we have been seeing God do, and it's just really starting to get rolling, is understanding our identity in Christ and living out as his representative, which is building upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Because what is the power of the Holy Spirit for? So you can represent Christ, so that you can represent him to the world, because he's now at the right hand of God. You are, here's another RE word. You're representing Christ. That's what we're doing now. And these are just a few of the larger revivals. There have been thousands of small revivals. Sometimes a revival is only a small church. My friend Donald McMillan from Scotland, there was a revival that was just out in the Outer Hebrides, the islands off the northern coast of Scotland. And there have been thousands of these, because God always, he will work wherever people will listen. Wherever people will listen, he will work. He is always ready. Revivals usually started locally and could move on to a global impact like the Charismatic Revival. And they can have an impact even beyond what you might imagine. Martin Luther with the, the revival of justification by faith, not works. His revival, not everybody became a Lutheran, but his revival impacted even the Catholic Church who began to moderate what they believed and taught based on what God was doing through Luther's ministry. It's amazing. Every revival has a foundation. And that foundation is going to be some aspect of God's word that he wants elevated at a particular moment in time. Because there's a lot. I don't know that there's a, been a revival that's everything all at once. It's usually some specific thing that God wants to emphasize. Our foundation for revival has been the word of God. And we have endeavored to build that within our lives. God is going to take portions of that word of God and he is going to spring them forth into revival. I'd like to read some things about the word of God from Psalm chapter 19. If you could look in Psalm chapter 19, a great section of scripture, speaking over and over again of the word of God, but calling the word of God by different names. It says, 
The law of the Lord, in verse 7, is perfect, reviving the soul. Once your, your soul is revived, you can revive others. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Our foundation for our lives is the word of God, an accurate understanding of what God has committed to the church. But no one stops at a foundation. You lay a foundation to build upon. As a matter of fact, if you might have seen sometimes in places a construction site where a construction site is abandoned with only a foundation there. Do we say, wow, what a great looking foundation. I always wondered what they look like. No, when we see only a foundation, we think something's wrong. Something's wrong in the church if all they do is learn the Bible. We need to build on that foundation. The foundation is God's word. The house to be built upon it today is revival. And my prayer is that we take our part in the revival that God is sparking throughout the body of Christ, that we can see John 16, 7, and we can believe it. We can look at our lives, at our church, at our impact, and we can say, yes, indeed, I am thankful that Jesus is at the right hand of God because it is better now because of what God has done in him. Even better than when Christ walked the earth. I'm excited about that. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what the emphasis specifically is going to be for our ministry, but I am confident that God has placed us to be a part of it, and I am further confident that God is at work within Garrett's soul to lead us through this revival, into and through this revival, so that we can see our God glorified, his son honored, and the world won for Christ. So I'd like you all please to stand. We're going to pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for this time that you've given us to live. I thank you, God, for committing your word to our trust, your sacred, your holy, and your true word to our trust. And I pray, God, for working within us, for showing each of us first as individuals and then as a body how we can be a part of what you're doing in our day and time, God. And we claim the earth for you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, God, and we are going to reclaim that for you, God. And we are going to preach Jesus Christ and see the impact of him on people all over the world. I pray, God, also for Garrett and for your anointing and calling upon his life to minister to us as we walk forward in all that you have set before us. And I pray these things, God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Amen. Thank you. God bless you. You're part of the revival. Let's go out there.